We are back this morning in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Took a little break over Christmas and over the beginning of this new year. But we are back going through this wonderful letter called the letter to the Hebrews. A letter to a church. A letter that was meant to uh, convict but also to challenge these believers with a very simple truth. It's the title of the sermon series that is Jesus is better. This little phrase is on repeat throughout this letter as essentially, if you can just imagine it, imagine there's this giant mantelpiece and there's all these mementos and trophies and trinkets that represent different things within the Jewish religion. And essentially what the writer is doing is taking each memento off the shelf, holding it up, examining it and demonstrating why each one is deficient when compared to Jesus, when compared to Christ. He is making sure that each of these believers that he is addressing understands that Jesus is better, period. There's no uh, qualification. There's no exception. There's no exception to that rule. Jesus is better. And he's shown that already in a couple of different ways. In a couple of ways that perhaps ruffled some people's feathers, Again, as he's writing to this church, roughly within the first century, roughly within the the decade of the 60s and that first century AD, he's writing to these believers who are entrenched with the old ways of Judaism, and now this new gospel that we could say comes about preaching Christ to people, establishing churches. And so he's sort of running uphill against some old, very old traditions and ways of doing things in the church. Which is why it's somewhat interesting that the very first things that he takes aim at in the chapters 1 and 2 is he makes sure to say that Jesus is better than the prophets and then Jesus is better than angels. He's already sort of taking aim at two very cherished, very revered sections of the Jewish religion. Those old prophets were revered figures. Men that you couldn't really touch. You didn't want to talk against the prophets. They were ones who spoke on behalf of God. And here he has said in the first couple of verses that Jesus is the true and better prophet. The one who is not just speaking for God. He is God come in the flesh. And then even more he goes on to say that Jesus is better than all of the angels because he is God's son come to us. You see he's going up against some very cherished, very revered, very recognized church figures. And he's not done ruffling feathers just yet. Because as chapter 3 opens, he's going to take aim, take a sort of, he's going to target another very revered, very celebrated figure within the Jewish religion. Of course, that figure is the man Moses. And here what he does is, he has a simple premise within these six verses Which is just to say that Jesus is better than Moses. Now, if you've grown up in church, you perhaps are not as impacted by these words as we should be. Because you might be thinking, well, duh, that seems rather obvious. Of course, Jesus is better than Moses. Moses didn't even make it to the promised land because he messed up. (laughs) You might be already thinking, why do we have to go through this? Well, it's actually very important. And I think actually the significance and resonance of just saying that Jesus is greater than Moses is way deeper than perhaps you could ever imagine at first. 
To get into the mind, though, these Jewish believers, these believers that are, have been introduced to Christianity, that were, but were so familiar and so comfortable, perhaps, with all of those old ways of Judaism, for them, there was no other historical figure who was perhaps held in higher regard than Moses. He was the man of their faith. Moses, in a lot of ways, sort of encapsulates the mind and the heart and the life of the Jewish people. Yes, even more so than Abraham. It is Moses that the people look to as sort of the champion of all that they are. And I think you can see this in a very small way, but actually a very significant way. If you remember from the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 is that event where Jesus ascends the Mount of Transfiguration. And who is it that appears beside Jesus in his glory? Elijah and Moses. Not Abraham, but Moses. The one who sort of represents the law. And therefore you have Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law. Standing there beside the Son of God. Which is just to say those are the figures... That the Jews look to most predominantly, and especially Moses, to speak ill of him would be to speak ill of Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Doing so would automatically make you enemies with whoever you're talking to. It's just not something that they would do. And I think you can see this through Moses' life. As Moses' life is... Almost all the way through it is, has an element of the divine, has an element of God's hand clearly upon Moses' life from his birth. That story of him being saved in the little basket to being raised up by the Egyptians themselves, by Pharaoh's daughter herself, raising up Moses who would one day come back and lead the people of God out of Egyptian bondage. You can clearly see God's hand is on Moses. It is clear from the beginning that he is a man selected and set apart for what God wanted him to do and wanted him to be. And I think such is why. Because it's so evident that God is on Moses' life that Israel look to him. They look to Moses as its leader, its luminary, its captain. He was the one that they were following. And yeah, they... They complained and they grumbled throughout all those wilderness wandering years. But they still followed him. They were still following Moses. And I think the remarkable fact is what? Is that whatever God, you can read, this is so fascinating. If you read all of those accounts of the people of God wandering and complaining and griping. And whenever God was just about ready, he's had enough with his people's gripes. He's had enough with his people complaining that, man, I wish we could go back to slavery. You know, remember where they're complaining that we have too much manna. It comes down and all we have to do is pick it up and it's too much. We would rather go back and go back into bondage. Even when they're complaining like that, who steps in and intervenes on behalf of Israel? It's Moses. In fact, there's, there's too many occasions than we have time for this morning. But just go, I challenge you, go to, uh, go to Deuteronomy and go, go to the book of Numbers. And look at all of the places where Moses prays to God that he would have mercy on his people. In a way, he sort of acts as a mediator, acts as an intercessor between God and the people of Israel. And prays for mercy. In a lot of ways, we might 
say very well that Moses was a prophet, a priest, and a king of God's people. And in fact, let me just take you to one place. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 34. And let me just show you just how revered Moses was. This is sort of the epitaph of Moses' life. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, the last chapter in that book. Notice verse number 10. As this is sort of how Moses is revered and regarded, as it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him. For all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. You see, even here, he is revered as above all of the prophets. He has seen God in his glory on that Mount of Sinai, remember? He's spoken with the Lord. He has spoken with God. Moses was a revered figure with Jew, inside Jewish lore and religion and faith. And yet, as great as Moses was... And he was truly great. Even he, the writer of the Hebrews says, even he was inferior to Jesus. And again, we shouldn't be so quick to just jump over that point. Because I think it's truly important to recognize what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to do here. Essentially, he's holding up both figures. As we read, I'll just read it again. As he says in verse 1 of Hebrews 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. You see, he's not trying to put down Moses in order to make Jesus seem better. He's trying to say, look at how Moses was great and he was truly faithful and God used him. And yet Jesus is even better than him. They were to recognize Moses' importance. But as he says, they were to consider Jesus all the more. And not let Moses rob Jesus of his glory. And that's essentially what this church was being tempted to do. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, well, several weeks ago now, at the beginning of this series, these Hebrew believers that were making up this church, they were under massive pressure. Massive pressure and being sort of coercion to renounce their faith of, in Jesus Christ or be at risk of, of putting them or, or, or be at risk of being put to death. And that was because Rome, of course, was they were okay with Christians until they weren't. And when they weren't, they really weren't okay. And when things went sideways politically or or socially or economically, it was the church that was receiving the brunt of a lot of that blame and a lot of that cruelty. And now those who confess faith in Jesus Christ, they weren't just risking uh, losing friends. They were risking being thrown to lions and coliseums. And the fires of that persecution, they began to ramp up. They began to heat up. And then, therefore, these Christians, these believers in this church were presented with a choice. Either recant, abandon, give up your faith in Jesus, or die. 
Essentially, that's what it came down to. That was the choice that they were presented. And there were many in those days who were giving up. They were abandoning. They were opting to save their own skin. And they would say, okay, we'll give up on Jesus. And we'll just go back to the old ways. It's a lot easier and I don't have to die. <laughs> Can you blame them, really? I, I, I like to think that if I was presented with that choice, I wouldn't give up. And I would like to think that I would. But sometimes, I, I know my own self. I know my own flesh. When you're presented with that in front of you, literal death, not hypothetical, but literal death, what would you do? You see, what the writer is trying to show them is that Jesus is so much better. And he's dead set. He's determined that the church not give up their confession. Not even in the face of death. Actually, as he repeatedly says, what is his greatest desire? His greatest desire is that they would hold fast. Notice verse number 6 of this text. Notice what he says. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Notice verse 14 where this appears again. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. Notice verse 14 of the next chapter, chapter 4. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And on it goes. He wants this church to hold fast. Which leads me to ask two questions as we're getting situated here. The questions are kind of simple. Is what were these believers abandoning the faith for? So if they were given the opportunity to say, believe in if you, uh, keep your faith in Jesus or die. And they say, okay, I'll renounce my faith in Jesus. What were they going to? What were, what were they exchanging Jesus for? And then the other question is, what were these believers being called to hold fast to? What was the writer trying to encourage them with to cling to, to clutch, to not give up on? I think the answer to that second question is very obvious. Verse 1, again, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He's the one that the writer is trying to say, hold fast, cling to Jesus, hold on to none but him. And in fact, that word consider is not a very good translated word. Because actually it means something way more intense. It literally means focus intensely. Give all of your attention to no one else and to nothing else. Give all of it to Jesus alone. Consider Jesus. And in fact, you could say that this little phrase, consider Jesus, is the book of Hebrews condensed into two words. Consider Jesus. Above anything and everything else. He is, as he says there, the apostle. He's the one that has been sent from God. He is the apostle of our confession. The high priest of our confession. The one who makes peace with God and us. And therefore, as he says at the end, he is our confidence. He is our hope. And he is our boast. No other object compares to Jesus. And that's why he's worthy of all of this attention, all of this affection. And again, why does he say that? He says, therefore, he's reaching back into what he's just talked about in chapters 1 and 2. Why is Jesus the, the, the one that we ought to consider? Because of everything I've just said, he essentially is saying. Because Jesus is the Son of God. 
He is God who has come in the flesh, who willingly endured the suffering of death for you, that you might live. That's why you should consider Jesus. And again, if you've grown up in church for a long time, or, or you're familiar with Sunday school, familiar with scriptures, and you know about Moses, you might say, of course, this again seems rather obvious. Why is this such a big deal? And I think this brings us to that other question. What were these believers embracing if they were abandoning Jesus? If they were to, if they were, what were they running to as they, as they gave up their confession, as they are tempted to do, if they're giving up their belief in Jesus, what are they running to? Well, in short, they're running to Moses. Not to the man, but to what Moses represented. And in a way, those who left the confession behind, they were taking up Moses, they were taking up the law. You know, we've already mentioned that Moses is held in such a high regard in the minds of these Jewish believers and the Hebrew Christians of that day. But I think it's crucial that you actually see it. Go with me to a couple places, just two places in the book of John. Go with me to the Gospel of John. And look at chapter number 9. Because there's two instances that I want you to see here where you can truly see how revered, how celebrated, how high regard the people in this day had for the man Moses and all that he stood for. In John chapter 9, just to, we're going to read a couple verses at the end of it, but I want you to just to get sort of situated into what's happening here in John 9. Because what's happened is Jesus has healed a man that was born blind. He was born blind, he could never see, and Jesus heals him. And he does so unless, no less, on the Sabbath day, the day that you weren't supposed to do any of those sorts of things. And of course... Those old enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, those very highbrow, high-minded men, were not very pleased. And they bring this once blind that, but now seeing man, they bring him in front of them. And basically, they have this man who has just received the miracle of sight. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to decipher how, the, how uh, this, this power that brought about this miracle. They're trying to understand. And I think what their goal is, as they make it very obvious, is that they want this man who has just been given the blessing of sight for the first time in his life to admit that it wasn't really Jesus' power doing it. And in fact, look at verse 26. John 9, 26. Notice, they have this man in front of them, and they said to him, the council of Pharisees is saying, what did he, what did Jesus do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man, the once blind, now seeing man, answered them, I have told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become Jesus' disciples? And they reviled him. At that point, they have just been offended. These Pharisees are like, well, no, we don't want to be associated with Jesus. How dare you? And look at what they say. Uh, You are his disciple, but we, notice, are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Right away, they see this miracle happen in front of them. And what are, they, what are they offended by? They are offended by the idea that God could be working through anyone but them. 
We know God spoke through Moses, and we are disciples of Moses. We have it figured out. This Jesus guy from the backwoods of Nazareth, we don't know where he's from. We don't know who he is and what he's got going on. And they say to this man right in front of them, we're disciples of Moses. Not God. We're disciples of Moses. He's the one who, we, they could say, they, they're believing all of Moses' words and Moses' doctrine. They're the ones that he's studying. This, by the way, is why the Pharisees had all of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, memorized. Because again, he was the leader of their faith. They were disciples of Moses. And this is why, again, this is why when Jesus comes on the scene, and what is he doing? <laughs> It's not by accident. I, I, not, I don't think that Jesus was just trying to make them upset. But in a way, I think he was. <laughs> he was trying to stir the pot a little bit. As Jesus comes on the scene, what does he do? He's doing miracles on the most holy day, on the Sabbath. He's, he's stirring the pot. He's, he's, he's doing things to make them a little bit annoyed. But he's trying to get their attention. So they can see that they've missed it. <laughs> They're following Moses. We are disciples of Moses. And if you want another example, look at John chapter 5. Go, go back with me a couple chapters to John chapter 5. Once again, I want you to see this. It's important, I think. A similar circumstance happens. Jesus heals a man that is blind and lame and paralyzed. And once again... It was on the Sabbath, which, as you might imagine, sent these very religious, very uptight Pharisees into a tizzy. They get all worked up, and they're leading to this, and it leads to this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And basically, what happens is he calls them out, he exposes them for how they've misplaced their loyalty and given it to Moses above God the Father Himself. Look at verse 37, John 5, look at verse 37. Notice what Jesus says. This is Jesus speaking. The Father who sent me. Again, now he's already saying that he is divine. Has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent you. Search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And that it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. (laughs) A very revealing little section this is. Yes, once again, the Pharisees are worked up because Jesus is somehow breaking the law by healing this man on the Sabbath. As Jesus has come to say, I'm the fulfillment of the law. And he's showing them that they've missed it. They've missed the point. They reckon themselves, these Pharisees did, the most righteous men of their day. And such is why they spend their whole lives just pouring over and pouring over the scriptures. Pouring over especially the words of Moses for insight and knowledge and wisdom. And ways in which they could become better men, more righteous men. 
And as they study the scriptures, as Jesus has just said, that you search them. What are they searching them for? Essentially, new ways in which their lives can be governed by which they can become right in the eyes of God. That was their belief, these disciples of Moses, these Pharisees. They were firm in the idea that religion, true religion, and even we could say eternal life, as Jesus has just said to them here, all, all of that, eternal life, everlasting life, was found within the law of Moses, within those words. And if they could just live right. Their ministry was all about that. How they, Pharisees, and yes, then other people under their ministry, how they could get into work their way into a right standing with God. How they could work their way to secure their place in the good place. If they could just learn the right words, if they could just do the right things for them, being right was simply a matter of doing right. And the only thing necessary for doing right and being right is knowing the right information. And such is why they're pouring over Moses' words constantly. And what does Jesus say? You've missed it. You've searched the scriptures to try and find eternal life. And you've missed the most obvious point of all. That Moses wasn't trying to give you new regulations by which you could live right. What was he doing? Moses spoke of me. Moses was talking about me the whole time. You've missed the point, he says. Verse 39 again. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they... That speak of me. Moses was talking about me the whole time. And by the way, that's why it says back in our text, Hebrews 3, 5. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. A.K.A. Jesus Christ. All of God's word, all of scripture, including and especially we could say the words of Moses. They are not meant to be seen as a divine manual that has been given to you by which you can work your way into heaven. That's not the, that's not the scriptures, that's not the Bible. I've said it before and I'll say it perhaps till I die. All of scripture is pure Christ. All of scripture Every single last syllable of the Bible that you hold in front of you is meant to point you to Jesus. It's meant to drive your attention to consider Jesus, the one, by the way, who comes to make us right. How? By giving us his righteousness. So by rejecting Jesus and clinging to Moses, what had the Pharisees done? Essentially, they had abandoned the founder and the builder of their faith for just another man. Which, go back to Hebrews 3, that's why he says this. That's why the Hebrew writer is so adamant in Hebrews 3 verses 2 through 5, adamant about what he's talking about. Notice again. Hebrews 3, actually verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things things is God. Moses was faithful. 
In his role, as he says in verse 5, as a servant in God's house, he fulfilled his calling. He did what he was supposed to do. He worked as a deliverer of God's people, bringing them out. Bringing, uh, he was working as a transmitter between God and the people, giving them the law. He was truly great in what he was called to do. But the point that Hebrew writer is saying is, is that he was just another man, just another servant within the household of God. Not the builder of it. The builder of the house, the builder of the church is God. Who, as the Hebrew writer has just said, is Jesus. He's the one who is building all of this. He's worthy of the glory that comes with recognizing that he is the builder and the owner of the house. See what the Pharisees had done? By calling themselves the disciples of Moses was akin to entering a giant mansion. And giving all of the credit and the, for the splendor and the beauty of that mansion to the butler. You know, um, in North Carolina, Asheville, there is the largest privately owned house in the United States. Known as the Biltmore Estate. Perhaps you've been there. I grew up really close to Asheville, uh, living in Greenville, South Carolina, where my dad still is. So I've been to Biltmore on several occasions. In fact, I'm kind of jealous of my dad and his church. They just went up there and sang at Christmas time. So shout out to my dad, kind of jealous of that. That's all right. I have to deal with that myself. Um, he didn't invite me, so, uh, but anyways. Um, it's, I'm, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Um, but uh, the Biltmore State is a place that holds a lot of significance for me. I think it's the place where Natalie and I, we went one time as a dating couple, and we were like, for sure, it's not where I engaged, that would have been nice, but um, <laughs> I didn't think that hard, far ahead, I guess, but that was the place where we confirmed that we were both going to be together for the rest of our lives, um, and it holds a lot of special meaning to me. The Biltmore State, as you might know if you look it up, it's around 180,000 square feet, one house. It took six years to build, and it roughly cost, in today's money, about $150 million. And if you go there, everything about it is grand. It's especially beautiful at Christmas time. Every single room is decked out to the max with Christmas decorations. You've never seen anything like this before, if you haven't seen it yet. But I think about that because I think about what the writer is saying in Hebrews, and I think about going to the Biltmore Estate. This immaculately manicured uh, sort of estate with everything is perfect. Everything is to the nines. Everything, there's nothing out of place. Imagine going there, witnessing all of that opulence, all of that craftsmanship. In every single nook and cranny, you're being given another evidence that this is the grandest of all grand things. And then you leave and you say, man... Those butlers and busboys, look at what they can do. You're more impressed by what the housemaids can do rather than being impressed by Mr. Biltmore himself. That's what that house stands to testify. Not to the fact that they have a bunch of cleaning ladies that are able to keep everything in a tight, in, in tight and tidy. That house stands as a testimony to what? That Mr. Biltmore is unafraid of doing everything to show everyone else how grand he is, how much glory he has. And I would say in a similar way, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They were 
swimming in the scriptures. And they left more impressed with a butler, with a servant in God's house, rather than the God of the house, Jesus himself, rather than the God of of the house, God himself. And in a way, all of that is essentially what this church was being tempted to do too. This church here that's being addressed in the book of Hebrews, again, they were faced with a choice. Exchange Moses for Jesus and live, or cling to Jesus and die. Again, that choice may not seem so, or it may seem obvious to us, but it wasn't so obvious for them. Remember, put yourself in their shoes. Everyone up to this time, up until 30 years prior to when this letter was written, what had happened? It was everything was hunky-dory. It was the law of Moses. We go to synagogue. We learn. We do this thing. And we go home. Everything was okay. Rome was okay with the Jewish religion so long as it consisted of the law law of Moses. But what were they not cool with? They were not cool with Christ coming and saying, I am the king of kings. And what had believing in Jesus gotten this church to this point? What had confessing that Jesus is the true son of God and the true Christ done for them? The only thing that had done for them is gotten them more suffering. So if you're presented with a choice of keep going in the way of suffering or go this way, if the way we've always done it, it's the way that everyone's okay with. And if you go this way, you don't have to worry about suffering too much. What seems obvious to you? You can see the writer. He's saying though. He is sure. He is sure beyond all belief. That no matter what this may offer. Jesus is better. Because of what he has. And because of what he gives his people. As the gospel of Christ grew. As the church grew. Of course as you know. If you read the New Testament. Hardship intensified. Persecution got worse. Abandoning Jesus in exchange for Moses puts you in a place perhaps to save your life, but it forfeits eternal life. Because you see, Moses was never meant to be the receiver of glory, just as the butler of the Biltmore estate wasn't meant to receive the attention. Rather, he was meant to serve as sort of a forerunner, a precursor, one who reflects the glory of his master, the one who truly is the glory of God, as it says in Hebrews 1.3, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God come in bodily form. That's Jesus. And again, you may think, so what? Uh, okay, of course, Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. Is this really that relevant? Do we really need to spend so much time on this? And I would say, yeah, you better believe it. Because I think the allure of Moses, the allure, the attention of the law is very much alive and well. And I would say that every single one of us here in this room faces the temptation to trade our discipleship with Jesus for discipleship under Moses. Every single day we face that choice, I think. 
And that's because what? We are all attracted to the same things that, the, that attracted the Pharisees. We are all attracted to the idea that we, we in and of ourselves, can work our way into glory. That we can work our way into being our own saviors. All we need is what? The right information, the right rules, and the right way to behave. And then we can earn, we can win, we can be in a right standing with God. Right? Wrong, wrong. That's dead wrong. You don't just need right information and right rules. You know, and I fear, I fear there are far too many preachers preaching sermons that result in more disciples of Moses than they would ever care to admit. And how do you know? You know by this. It's the sort of preaching that makes your problem of sin solvable by you. If you think your problem of sin is solvable by you, by you just getting the right amount of information, you've missed the problem of sin. Your problem, your deepest problem isn't about how to fix your marriage or fix your devotional life or fix your family or fix your parenting or or whatever. All those things that populate a lot of popular preaching, that doesn't fix your deepest problem. And yet all of that preaching does is what? It makes disciples of Moses. It makes people look for their Bibles and look through them for spiritual tidbits and insights on how we can better ourselves, on how we can try more and do more and try harder at being better as if that's what it means to be right with God. And I'm sorry to say it's not. That's not how anyone, that's not how anyone ever has ever become right with God. Because your truest and deepest problem is not that you're lost and you only need some GPS help. Or that you're sick and you only need some medicine. Your deepest problem is not that just you're immoral, so you need some better behaviors. We might think that way. We might think that that's all that we need, but all that really does, all that such rhetoric really does is it makes your problem of sin really small. And what does that do? Likewise, if you make your problem of sin small, you make the salvation that Jesus gives you even smaller. You make the gospel small by, dis- by downplaying how bad you are. And that's the point of this contest between Jesus and Moses, between all of the Bible. Because your truest and deepest problem is not that you're lost or not that you're sick or not that you're just immoral. It's the fact that you're dead. As it says in Ephesians 2.1, you are dead in trespasses and sins. There's no working your way into a right standing with God. You don't need a crutch that can help you walk better. You need a defibrillator to bring you back to life. You don't need more instructions to help you behave better. You need to be born again. You don't just need right information You need resurrection. And who is that? You need Jesus. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. Where Moses reveals God's heart through this word of law. Jesus reveals God's heart through the word of grace. And that's the word that saves. 
That's the word that makes us right with God. The law was never meant to do that. It could never do that. It could never be used as a means of salvation. What was the law meant to do? Expose how utterly incapable we are of ever keeping it. It's that old Ten Commandments test. Have you ever tried to go through it? Have you ever told a lie? And you say no. Well, even just a small one. Okay, yeah, I guess. You've already broken it. You've already lost. It's done. We don't even have to go further. The whole thing is forfeit. You've lost. You can't keep it. Because the Ten Commandments is not just do as best as you can and God will make up the rest. The law of Moses is what? You've got to be perfect 100%, 24-7, 365 till the end of your life. How are you doing with that? If you, and again, this is why Jesus was ruffling some feathers because that's what he was telling the Pharisees and everyone. Okay, if you want to be a disciple of Moses, this is the bar. This is the standard. This is what you have to live up to. How are you doing? He says, with me, what does he say? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest of what? The rest that my righteousness finishes all of your needs and it makes up for everything that you are deficient in and it supplies everything that you need to be in a right standing with God right where you are. The law was meant to do what? To drive us to our knees. Again, so that we cry out like in Romans chapter 7, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who will save me? Who can deliver me from this body of death? And that's where the gospel always says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what it means to have salvation. We can never in a million lifetimes work our way rightly enough to be in a right standing with God. And yet what does the good news say? There is one who has come to live rightly for you. And he invites you into his house. This morning if you believe in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and his shed blood for you. You are part of the family of God right where you sit. Right now. You don't have to work your way into more and better standing. You get to live out your faith knowing that you have all the righteousness you will ever have because you have Jesus. My friend, if you don't know Jesus and you think that you can earn your way to heaven, you are not a disciple of God. You are the disciple of Moses. You are one who thinks that if you could just have the right little tidbits, the right little information, I can fix myself. I can make myself better. And my friends, that is the way of destruction. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot earn your way to everlasting life. It is a gift and it comes through Jesus, not Moses. And this is why, again, this is why Jesus is better. Because, yes, the world may be okay with living the way of Moses and living just upright lives. Lives of morality. Lives of being good. Lives of being nice. But the way of Jesus, yes, it may offer suffering. It may offer persecution. It may offer more problems and more heartache and more annoyance. But it offers everlasting life. There's no other gift that can compare to that. 
And that's only what Jesus can offer you. And that's what Jesus only can offer you. No one else has eternal life. No one else has that good news. That comes through Jesus. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We, like this church here in Hebrews, are presented with a choice. Are we going to be disciples of Moses or disciples of Jesus? There's one way. The disciple of Moses is the way of bearing a lot of burdens and always having a white-knuckled fear that you're not doing enough. And the way of Jesus is the way of rest. It's the way of burdens being taken off of you because you know that you already are enough because Jesus was enough on your behalf. My friends, there is a way of freedom. There is a way of living righteously. There is a way of living gloriously. And it's the way of Jesus Christ. If you don't know him this morning, I pray with every bone, every fiber in my body. That today would be the day that you say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He took all for you. To make you a part of his family. Don't keep running. Don't keep trying to work your way into some other way to a right standing with God. Lay your arms down and find the rest of Jesus' righteousness at his very feet, at the foot of the cross. My friends, Jesus is better. Let us pray.